Revelation 10, 1 through 11, this also is God's holy word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. <clears throat> then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us your word. And Father, your word is truth, that your word is light, that illumines our darkness. Father, we pray, acknowledging how quickly and how easily uh, we begin to sing the off tune of the world, that we forget what you have called us to. Father, we acknowledge how easy it is the desire to be accepted and received and praised by this world. But Father, you have said to us that um, those who are all well spoken of, that they are not of your prophets, they are of your false prophets. Father, we pray that we would seek your praise, that we would seek to please you. Father, we acknowledge even as they rejected and despised Christ our Lord, that they will reject and despise his followers. May we delight in you. May we trust in you. May we trust in your provision. May we trust in the plan that you have for our lives, that you have called us uh, not to a life of ease and of comfort, but rather you've called us to a life of suffering, of persecution. And Father, may we cherish that. May we give you thanks for we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Grant us a greater understanding and appreciation for his perfect work for us. Father, we pray that if any are here who have not committed their lives to Christ, we pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to do that mighty work. Father, may your son, Jesus, be exalted, and may your servant be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> As we read the scriptures, even this passage, 
I'm reminded that the call to Christianity is not for the faint of heart. It's not for those who are going to succumb to peer pressure. It's not for those who, who are going to be fearful of men. That's naturally there. We have a fear of man, but there must be a greater fear of God. Even as we look at this passage, we're reminded about God's concern for his people. We see these interludes. These interludes come so often. As we've gone through Revelation, I'm reminded about the description of what's called progressive parallelism. So from Revelation 4 to Revelation 22 is not a singular, like a linear timeline where it begins and then it comes to an end and it never repeats. The progressive parallelism indicates that the Apostle John is giving a similar message told in multiple ways. Uh, meaning that, hey, it seems like he's repeating himself. It seems like he's talking about similar things again. Well, it should be. We think about the opening of the scroll or a breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets and the bowls of wrath. He's giving us maybe a bit more, a different perspective, a bit more uh, information, a bit more revelation each time in different ways. Even as we come to this passage, we come to another interlude that there between the breaking of the sixth seal and the seventh seal at uh, Revelation 7, that there was an interlude. And what happened there was that God's people, Christ's servants, uh, God had said to hold back the winds so that God's people can be sealed. And there was an interlude. And then, then you have the blowing of the trumpets. And with the blowing of the trumpets, trumpets one through four were these cataclysmic events, right? Hail and fire and the mountain being thrown into the sea and the third of the sea turning into blood uh, and all kinds of carnage. And then you have the locusts in the fifth trumpet. The locusts were actually, it appeared like locusts, they were, they were demons. They were tormenting uh, the dwellers on earth and then the sixth trumpet, you have uh, the, not the tormenting anymore, but the taking of life, one third of mankind. And we're told still, those who dwell on the earth, which is a term used to describe unbelievers, that they still refuse to repent. They refuse to repent of their immoralities, of their idolatries. Here in today's passage, Revelation 10, 1 through 11, and, and into chapter 11, we have an interlude reminding us about what we are called to be, what we are called to do, that may the difficulties, may the opposition uh, not detour you from living for Jesus Christ. So we see in this passage, Revelation 10, despite widespread animosity to Christ, he emphasizes his dominion and your duty to trust him and proclaim his word. Despite widespread animosity to Christ, he emphasizes his dominion and your duty to trust him and proclaim his word. We'll look at this in four points. The first, the dominion of God's son in verses one through four. Second, the certainty of God's promises in verses five through seven. Third, the effect of God's word in verses eight through 10. And fourth, the proclamation of God's gospel in verse nine. So the first point, the dominion of God's son in verses one through four. <clears throat> 
Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Here, when we think about what's happening in this book of Revelation, I'll provide you uh, a, a, a quick review that uh, much of the recent chapters uh, from chapter 10 going back uh, relates to what happened in Revelation 6. Was it the opening of the fifth seal, the breaking of the fifth seal? That was the seal of the martyrs, that the, the dead martyrs, uh, so here, we're reminded that these are dead martyrs. They've been, uh, they've been raised uh, imperishable. They've been raised uh, without sin. So their, their request about what God, when will you judge and avenge their blood, that this was a, a holy request. It was a request without sin. Uh, Revelation, or they were told then in, in Revelation 6 that they were given white robes and they're told to rest a little while longer. That God's plan of all the martyrs are saying, all the martyrs are not yet dead. They haven't been killed. So God is saying, hey, there's patience. There's a long suffering in God. Hey, what's happening is that as Christians are witnessing to the world, that the world is despising hearing about the message. They want the silence. They want to silence the testimony of Jesus. When we think about uh, the beginning and, and throughout the, the book of Revelation, the mention about John of uh, a testimony to the word of God, right? a testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, there was an interlude. And it was so that the bond servants might be sealed. And, and there was this comfort that Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. And that the multitude were standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they were giving highest praise to God. Continue in Revelation 8 and 9. God was providing his answer to the martyrs to avenge the blood of the martyrs. There, were, there was the blowing of the first four trumpets. Uh, that uh, There was a scene in, in Revelation 8 where the angel uh, the, well, the, the prayers of the saints were going up, and then uh, there was like fire that he was throwing out onto the earth. So, so from Revelation 8 and 9 and, and going onward, it's as if these chapters are providing the answer to the prayers of the saints from Revelation 6, that this is part of God's beginning of judgment upon those who have rejected this message. The first four trumpets dealt with cataclysmic events, hail and fire. Uh, that was the first trumpet. Then uh, the mountain is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns into blood. That was the second trumpet. A great star fell from heaven. That was the third. And then the third of the stars were struck, so they did not give their light, the fourth trumpet. And then you had the fifth trumpet. 
Remember here, it was the bottomless pit opened and the locusts came out. These locusts, they appeared like locusts, they were actually demons. And they came to torment people. We're told that the torment was like the torment of a scorpion sting. I don't know about you, I haven't been stung by a scorpion before. I, I can't imagine it would be fun. Then the sixth trumpet, the, the evil angels, and we know that they're evil angels or demons, because the, the righteous, the holy angels, that they don't have to be released. That it's the demons who are bound. And that these four angels that were released, that they took uh, one third of mankind, they took their lives. And we're told at the end of Revelation 9, <clears throat> verses 20 and 21, that even with this torment and death for those, the two-thirds that remain, they refuse to repent of their idolatries and their immoralities. They refused. They, they refused to repent. That even in the midst of their toil, that they were gnawing their tongues in pain, but they did not turn to the Lord. It reminds me of that Tom Petty song. Uh, it was something about not backing down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell and I won't back down. Right? This is how sinful man is. Despite, hey, look, look at, the, look at the ends. Every time you go to a funeral, what you're seeing is that men are born and men die. And that after death comes judgment. And it's as if going to a funeral, there's this moment of clarity that people have. You know what? That's my uncle, or that's my grandfather. But someday, that will be me in that casket, and I will have to answer to God. But then, after an hour, after a day, it's as if whatever questions that have come up, they vaporize. There's the urgency of the daily life, and going on with life, and the enjoyments, and the distractions of life. And it's not thought of anymore. In Revelation 10, through uh, chapter 11, verse 14, we have another interlude uh, before the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Here, the big question that comes up in verses uh, 1 through 4 in this chapter 10 has to do with the identity of this mighty angel. So there in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Here, uh, the, the trusted commentaries, the good ones, they're about equally divided between those who refer to this mighty angel as uh, like an angel of the Lord or whatnot, it was an appearance of Christ himself. So uh, when we look in the Old Testament, <clears throat> we often uh, see the description of an angel of the Lord. So when we look at uh, the story of um, Hagar and Ishmael, Genesis 16, or uh, the near sacrifice of Isaac uh, with Abraham and Isaac present in, uh, present in Genesis 22, or Exodus 3, the incident of Moses and the burning bush, we're told that there was an angel of the Lord. But then the angel of the Lord is as if it was God's mouthpiece and God's very presence was there. And some people claim, well, wait a minute, those were all pre-incarnate Christ. So before Christ took upon himself human flesh, that this, this was Christ being manifested. And after Christ took upon himself human flesh, there would be no more of these appearances. Well, let me, let me just say this, in case some of you are wondering and thinking I've said it. 
I'm not in any way saying that Jesus is an angel, merely an angel or a glorified angel. Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He is God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is divine. I've said it in as many ways as I could. But look at the descriptions. Look at the descriptions of <clears throat> this mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. <clears throat> we think back to Revelation 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. At Jesus' uh, arrest, when they asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us so. So this is the chief priests were accusing Jesus, saying, tell us if you are. And he quotes Daniel 7, and he talks about uh, the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And at that point, they're saying, hey, well, why do we need any more witnesses to convict you? We've heard you say it yourself that he's claiming to be divine. And, and this idea of God coming in the clouds, that the clouds are basically like the, the, the vehicle that God uses with a rainbow over his head. We see that in Revelation 4. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We're reminded about the rainbow and its symbolism. Keep in mind, the rainbow concept began with God, not man. Whatever modern day adulterations of the rainbow there are, it does not take away of God's true meaning of his rainbow. Genesis 9 verses 15 to 16, it was a sign of the Noahic covenant that God never again would destroy all flesh by a worldwide flood. As a covenant made between God and man, you must realize that the Lord Jesus is part of that covenant. He is one of those who made it. He, he is the mediator of that covenant. We're told also in this passage that his face was like the sun, Revelation 1, 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His legs were like pillars of fire, Revelation 1.15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Here, I hope you can see. Whether or not this is an angel representing Christ, it's as if he comes reminding us of who Jesus is and his authority. <clears throat> the scroll, and we see the scroll here. And how he had a little scroll, this is verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Generally speaking, you think that this might result in a problem. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a boat, and, and how, how do you get into a boat, right? Typically, you have a dock, meaning that you have some floating device, and you step out of the dock and into the boat, Right? And if you have one foot in the boat and one foot in the dock, generally things don't go so well. Right? Uh, you might need someone to hold uh, the boat to the dock. I, I've learned this lesson before. Uh, if you try both feet at once into the boat, you're probably going to flip the boat. Well, you understand. But here Jesus, or, or the description of Jesus, one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. The description of having your foot somewhere 
is a description about sovereignty, about rule, about dominion. Jesus is claiming that he has dominion over the sea and over the land. And the last time that I checked, there's nothing else regarding the earth. There's the sea and there's the land. And you, you see the mention first of the sea because there's more sea than land. Was it, a third, uh, was it two thirds or, a, or three quarters of the world is covered by sea? And maybe a third or a fourth of the world is by land? The bottom line is Jesus saying is he's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. He has, he has dominion over all of it. We see this very description of the feet in Deuteronomy 11, verses 24 to 26. The promise is given to Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. You see that manifested in the next book, Joshua, the symbolism over feet. Joshua 10, verses 24 and 25, that there were certain kings, king of Jerusalem, a king of other places, and Joshua said, bring them to us. So these were the ones who tried to fight against Israel. Keep in mind, the book of Joshua, it was God commanding his people systematically to go through the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and he said, exterminate each of these groups of people, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, wipe them all out. Because he said, if you don't, then you're going to observe them in their idolatry, and then you're going to copy it. And then their sins are going to pollute you. And sure enough, they didn't wipe them out. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But in that very scene, Jesus said that, uh, sorry, Joshua said, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. The symbol that, uh, here, you might think, hey, uh, what kind of cruelty, what kind of demeaning thing was this? Well, no worries. At the very next scene, the, their lives were taken. But the idea there is God said that his people would conquer them. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus has dominion over the heavens and the earth, over the sea and the land? Is there any place where Jesus does not rest his foot? Is there any place that Jesus does not claim as his own? It requires faith on your part and my part to say the world rejects him. Those who are in power, those who wield authority, those who possess the, the funds, the money, that they are all opposed to Christ. They despise him. They curse him. But you realize that Jesus still is an authority and sovereign over all of them. That he allows them, he gives them the breath to speak, even when they curse his name. That's part of God's patience and his long-suffering. May you and I be reminded that we are to judge by the eye of faith, not by the eye of flesh, not by the ears of flesh. Jesus has dominion over the land and the sea. We see also this scene in verse 4 about the seven thunders. That John, the apostle John apparently was a good note taker. Uh, you, you, you notice various people. There, some people like to take notes. Other people don't like to take notes, right? So, and 
And the whole idea of being, you know, is a person a, book, a, good, a good bookkeeper? And I've noticed, if you look at various marriages, we've talked to couples, uh, whether uh, premarital counseling, whether uh, marital counseling or postmarital counseling, some people have said, hey, the man has to be the guy in charge of the finances. And other ministers, far wiser than me, says, no, that's not true. He may not have been given those gifts. He is responsible for all, all that happens under, under his household. She might be the one who's the better bookkeeper as she handles the books. He is responsible for everything that happens, every decision, financial decision that's made. He may not even make all the decisions, but he is responsible for it. We see about bookkeepers, and John apparently, Apostle John was a good bookkeeper, right? He, he had his bookkeepers. He was jotting down the notes, and it was the angel that told me, hey, don't write that down. There in verse 4, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. So he said, hey, I was taking down notes. And, and essentially what happened is angels saying, this is not going to go into the book of, that we call Revelation, meaning that there's certain things that he was given. These weren't the things that he was supposed to disclose, that he was supposed to reveal. And you notice that there is this part of us the desire to know, the sin of needing to know, the sin of needing to know. You think about certain matters of juicy gossip, you know, we have to know it. There's a tendency for sinful man to desire the secret things of God. When here you have, you have his revelation, the Bible. People say, hey, I, I, I want to know, I want to know what, 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 God, what, what job God wants me to have, which house he wants me to buy, which woman he wants me to marry. And it's like, hey, have you, you been in his book? Are you meditating on his work? No, no, no. I, I, I want to know the secret things. Hey, no, listen. Think about and meditate on what he has given us. The secret things belong to God. It's the revealed things. Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Do not desire the secret things of God. Desire the things that he has revealed to us. Meditate upon them. Know them. You and I are accountable for them. May we be knowledgeable in the things that he has called us to know. And may we be blissfully ignorant of the things that he has hidden from us. So that's the first point, the dominion of God's sin. Son, we have the second point, the certainty of God's promises in verses 5 through 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. We have this angel taking an oath. And here some people claim, hey, you see here, this is proof uh, that uh, the angel was swearing in the name of someone higher than him. Okay, well, uh, the bottom line, God swears, and he swears by himself. Right? He swears by him who lives forever and ever. What we're focused on, rather, is the mystery mentioned in verse 7. 
The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Well, what mystery is this? The mystery of the gospel, could it be? Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery of the gospel, that the gospel would go forward, that despite the opposition, despite the rebellion of, of sinful man, that the gospel is going forward to save sinners. But there's also the mystery of God's great plan for his beloved people. We think back to, was it Revelation 5, that the apostle John wept because he said, who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? And among those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, no one was worthy but the lamb who was slain. And that this scroll, opening of the scroll, symbolized uh, the carrying out of God's sovereign plan of redemption, of judgment. That this mystery is that God would allow his people to suffer. That he promised that you would be those who will judge not only men, but angels when Jesus returns. But for the time being, he had said, oh, you're going to be laughed at ridiculed, persecuted, and some of you will lose your lives because of the faith. And you ask, why is that mystery there? Why, why, why God, does it need to be this way? Well, why can't, right after we're converted, you, you just beam us up to heaven? Or why, why, why is it that uh, once we're converted, we should suddenly be rulers in this world, and the, the, the wealthiest and the best looking, and well, some of you are good looking, yes, uh, so the best looking and, and the most powerful, everyone listens uh, to what you have to say and you have a billion followers uh, on, on whatever your videos. All I have to say is that's not going to happen. Hey, do, 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 I, do I miss out that uh, you know, I, I travel somewhere and there's not a hotel but the Roach Motel that I got because Taylor Swift is in town and I realize, hey, well obviously people like watching Taylor Swift a lot more than they like listening to someone preach God's word. So, so life is, right? So life is. We move on. Do you marvel at the mystery of God's revelation to you? That God would send his perfect son to die on behalf of sinners. That those of us who are considered the unworthy those of us who are considered lost, be unrighteous, that God would say, here is my perfect son given on behalf of sinners so that those who are unclean can be cleansed, that those who are unrighteous can be declared righteous in Jesus Christ. This is the mystery. Why, God, did you do this? Why have you provided for us so great a salvation through your son? And we understand the certainty of God's promises. And to that, we must rejoice. We have a third point, the effect of God's word, verses 8 through 10. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. 
And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. First, we have this concept of the word of God that is ingested. The scroll, uh, it's ingested. And it's a reminder to us that we must take in God's word. And it's not a one-time eating, but it's a regular, uh, frequent ingesting of God's word. Imagine children, how healthy would a person be if he ate food just once or twice a week? And if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, uh, and you didn't know when it was going to come, uh, imagine how much you'd have to eat. And, well, uh, that's, that's a lot of food coma there. And most people see the need to eat a few times a day, and, and they take their time to prepare good, fresh, wholesome food. And we're reminded how important that is, how much your time is spent. Uh, perhaps for some of us, uh, the reason why there is so much uh, disease and illness is because people don't spend enough time preparing food. They have pre-made food and, and uh, store, whatever's the case, you, you understand. But we ought to think about the importance of God's word. Job twenty-three twelve. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my necessary food. How often, how much time we spend preparing our food, sitting down to eat, how often is it that we think, have I taken in my spiritual food for today? Malnourishment, malnutrition. This is what happens when the quality of the food we eat is not good, or it's just not simply not enough. Imagine what it would look like for a person spiritually. Imagine what would shape their mind so the world is coming to us, and here I, I'm, I'm warning you that the world's coming to us with things called news. It's not news, they're lies. They're, they're spins. Do, do you think that the world would lie to you? Is that, is that news to you that I'm telling you? Hey, people are going to try to deceive me to think certain things. What is God's word? Are those lies too? No, that is truth. The filter the filter by which we interpret what happens in this world is the Word of God, not the other way around. If we interpret the Word of God through the filter of the world's truth, then what you have is you view God's Word with continuing suspicion and doubt. Don't do that. It should be the other way around. We interpret the world and its events through the filter of God's Word, that God's Word guides us as truth so that we can understand Sinful people will lie to us. They will attempt to deceive us. There is the need for an experiential knowledge of God. Imagine you have uh, two people. One, a PhD botanist. That he studied uh, tropical fruit of some whatever kind. But imagine he has, he has uh, no sense of smell, which means he has no sense of taste. I've met people like this who uh, I ask them, hey, how, how do you enjoy your food then? So, well, there's, there's different textures. And he mentioned, oh, uh, for example, he says, cream cheese. He says, I hate that stuff. He says, why? 
It's like, because the texture is horrible in my mouth. Oh, okay. It's like, well, how do you enjoy it? It's like, oh, okay. God didn't give him a taste, a sense of taste. But imagine you have a scientist, no sense of taste. He studies tropical fruit and he says, okay, this is, this is well, what the chemical uh, equivalent, these, these are the, the nutrients we can, we can analyze from it. But then you ask him, hey, well, for example, this, uh, this fruit called the sheramoya. I hope, hope you children got to eat some of that when you were overseas, a lot of it. Uh, Mark Twain described it, he says, this is deliciousness itself. There's no fruit as tasty as this. But imagine that scientist with no sense of taste, how, how could he describe to others this fruit? Wouldn't you rather hear it from someone who hey, has no PhD behind his name, but he's, he's eating it right? Hey, let me describe what this fruit tastes like. So also you think about the intellectual knowledge of God. Hey, I've heard about God, I've read about him. Well, do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? The big question is, do you know God? Having depended on him and seen that he is to you in every way trustworthy. In difficult times, have you believed in him? Have you trusted him saying, this is how you should walk? In difficult times, have you said, okay, I'm gonna take your word by faith. You've told me this is how I ought to obey and that you trusted there's far greater blessing in believing and obeying than there is in disobedience. Yeah, a simple one. Example of, he has commanded you to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. You realize that the gospel indeed is good news to sinners. Have you followed God's ways of resolution? When there's difficulty in relationships in life, have you trusted him saying, hey, this is what God tells us about how we resolve difficulties. There's a need for an experiential knowledge of God. We see that the word of God has a certain effect. There's sweetness in the mouth, but there's bitterness in the stomach. We think for a moment about the sweetness of God's word. What comes to your mind? Children, what, what are some of the things that you frequently turn to in your Bible that's good news to you? Think for a moment about God's abiding presence. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Are you ever lonely? You could be surrounded by people. You could be surrounded by millions of people in close proximity, but still, still feel alone. God is with his people, and he promises he will never leave us or forsake us. What about the sweetness of the promise of the gospel? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would think it is good news it is sweetness, every time you sin, that you would turn to that passage, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're reminded, hey, Jesus has paid the debt for your sin. He's paid the debt for my sin. And that indeed is good news. Here we think also about how in various cultures, at various places, people would say, hey, 
uh, this type of flavor, this type of food is good. In other places, it would say that kind of food is horrible. Okay? This is part of enjoying different cultures, right? So, for example, you, you try various foods. Some people say, hey, that's, that's bad stuff. I remember, who was this guy? There was one food show. And it was interesting. This guy, he ate all kinds of strange food. And, and uh, one of the things that he hated was durian. Right? And you, you, go to, you go to some parts of Asia where they have this giant fruit. It's kind of prickly. It's called durian. It smells like sweaty socks. And the question is, who would eat that? Well, apparently those who have taken the leap of faith to try have said, oh, it's delicious, but it still smells like sweaty socks. Here we think about the sweetness of the word of God and the gospel promise. We realize there is a certain universality. It's a sweet message in every place. There's no people group that you can say, you know what? The gospel is not going to be good news to them. They have a greater need of something else. No, no, that's, that's completely wrong. The gospel is good news. Everyone is descended of Adam, every human. There's, there's not multiple races. There's one race. It's called the race descendants of Adam. Right? We think about biblical terminology. There's one race. Descendants of Adam, being human race, descendants of Adam, yes. And, and that's the human race. And if they're descendants of Adam, then they're affected by Adam's fall. All of us, without exception, except Jesus. And the good news of the gospel comes to each one of us, every nation, every people group, every language group. And we're told that this is good news. This is what, this is what every... Every individual group of people need the most is hope in the gospel, hope in the forgiveness that comes with Jesus Christ. But there's also the bitterness aspect, the bitterness to the stomach, the bitterness of the word of God. For yourself, this bitterness means that following Jesus Christ means that you must die. Colossians 3 Two to three, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This means that your old self, your old way of dealing with things must come, must change. You, you mean that this way that I was raised, it's not right? Hey, uh, if that's the case, then hey, Who's right? Your, your family tradition or the word of God? The word of God. These things must change. It means that we must die to our old selves. It means that we're required to change. You know, I realize as, as people get older, people don't like to learn. People don't like to change. Uh, people like to be comfortable doing what they do. But you realize that part of the Christian life means that you and I should constantly be changing. Because to grow, to grow in Christ, means change. Yet there's also the bitterness in that following Christ will cause division. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Christ necessarily means the hatred of the world. This is part of the bitterness. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why is this so? Why does the world hate you if you're a follower of Christ? Simply put, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, that you are an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. A fragrance of life unto life, but also a fragrance of death unto death. So if you are a Christian living as you should, the effect is that to unbelievers, you will be like that stench of death, a stench of roadkill. You children, have you ever, have you ever smelled it? You drive on the road and you know, it, it gets through the seams, through the gaskets of your car. You smell that stench of death. This is what you smell like to non-Christians because you're a reminder that with death comes judgment. But the positive is that you will be an aroma of Christ to those who are believers. So that's the effect of God's word. We have the proclamation of God's gospel in verse 9. <clears throat> so I went and told him to give me the little, oh, sorry, it's verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Here, we often think of prophecy as foretelling the future. But prophecy is much broader than that. In fact, uh, prophecy is not even mostly the foretelling of the future. Prophecy is the foretelling of God's word. Uh, when you think about prophecy mentioned in the, the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, more likely than not, it was proclaiming God's word, simply proclaiming what he has given us. You think about how the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 speaks about how he did not hold back declaring the whole counsel of God's word. This whole counsel of God's word, it's not as if someone can in one minute or one hour or in 24 hours say everything there is about God's word, his whole counsel all the time. Well, you think about the whole counsel of God's word and what is God's word that is most important for you to hear? My simple answer is, it is the part of God's word that you are least likely to receive. The one that you are most resistant to, that is the word, the whole counsel of God's word that you must hear, that you must be reminded of, is that which you are most resistant to accepting. So the prophecy, what does John call the prophecy about? So here, you must, you must again prophecy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Understandably, in Hebrew and in Greek, uh, these, these, these terms, these propositions could have many different meanings. Uh, other translations, not the ESV, would say prophecy against. So these groups, people, nations, languages, and kings, addresses all the categories of men. So John's prophecies then would reach to the end of the world with uh, the word of God going forward. 
And the question that comes up is, uh, what if they don't listen? We realize that God's mention to his people, to the church, the Great Commission, it had nothing to do with what not they would listen or not listen. We see that mentioned in Ezekiel's call in Ezekiel 3. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel has a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. You see here, it, it sounds very similar to uh, 1 Samuel 8 when Samuel is concerned. He's go, he goes to God say, hey God, sorry to be the bearer of this bad news, but Israel has rejected me as their leader. They're asking for a king. And, and God comes back and says, hey, Samuel, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And here we think about, we see everything personally. Hey, they're rejecting us. No, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. That's far worse. That's far greater. And regarding what not they will hear. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. It's not because they all will hear. Well, granted, you know, the scriptures say, Second Timothy, that, Peter, uh, that Paul says, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. This is our desire, that people would hear and believe. But you realize that there's also those who reject it, and that's part of God's plan as well. For many of us, we have to come to realize that to share the message with others, but to have it despised and rejected, this is actually for the strengthening, the maturing of your own faith. You realize that. As, as you share this message with others, I'll tell you what happens. You get such a strong response for someone where it might be someone you love and they're suddenly really angry at you, or someone you've never met before, and they're suddenly really angry at you because you talk about this Jesus. One or two things will happen. You're going to say, wow, I, I should never speak about this Jesus again because here people just get so angry, and I don't want to upset people. Or you're going to ask yourself this question, hey, wait a minute. Why are people like this? What has Jesus told me? Am I trusting it? Is it good news for me? And are you going to go on despite the opposition? Here, as we think through even this Revelation 10, think through how it can be of a reminder of use to you. This whole book of Revelation is a reminder that the Lord Jesus is Lord and Master over the sea and over the land and over the heaven above. Despite what you judge by your eye of flesh, that the Lord Jesus exercises dominion over all. He exercises dominion over your life, over my life, over all the nations. How does this passage instruct you regarding the values and the ideals that you model and teach to your children? Do we teach our children that the winners are those who get and keep the highest paying jobs and are well spoken of by all the people? Well, what were some of Christ's warnings about this? When he says, when all men speak well of you, for so Israel did to the prophets? No, 
He said, for so Israel did to the false prophets when all men speak well of you. Are the winners actually those who are despised and forsaken of men, just as Jesus our Lord was? Despised and forsaken. These lessons invariably will come up as children witness their own parents being rejected and despised as they bear witness of the gospel to others. This is part of their instruction. Hey, strong reaction came from so-and-so. And they might even ask you, Dad, Mom, what did you do wrong? Oh, you know what? It wasn't actually something that I did wrong. You realize this is how sinners respond to Christ. Here, it's a reminder to us that God's word indeed is as sweet as honey. When was the last time that you thanked God for his great promises and rejoiced in his holy character and his wholesome laws? When was the last time that you thought... This is good news. This very idea when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. He came to call sinners. He didn't come. He, he doesn't come for those who are well. He comes for the sick. He came to call sinners. And this is sweet to us who are sinners in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? Trust in this Jesus who saves sinners to the uttermost. The stomach is also made bitter. Have you felt the effect of God's word and the bitterness to your stomach, perhaps with the loss of friends, the loss of promotions, the rejection of your own family, the cursing and despising of men? You realize firsthand that the desire for sinners is to silence the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Perhaps there was a time that you were once so eager to tell others about salvation in Jesus Christ. Have you long since given that up? It's a reminder to us that we must fight that urge. It's not a holy urge. Jesus is the one who commands us to continue on. Despite the persecution, despite the rejection, you ask yourself, whom is it that you love and fear? Do you love and fear the world? If so, then you will obey Satan, who's the master of the world. Or do you love and fear the Lord Jesus? He is the one who has called us that we might live out the truth of the gospel in our lives, that we would be able to see, hey, it's no fun being rejected, but it is good to obey the Lord Jesus. That is for the strengthening of your faith and mine that we might be reminded that the word of God indeed is sweet, but yet it is also bitter to the stomach. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we pray, Father, that you would remind us of our hope in Jesus, that he has raised us up anew. Father, help us not to follow the patterns of this world, we pray, Father, that we would live for your glory, that we would not live in any complacency, Father, instead that we would live in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, we pray, acknowledging 
that your word indeed is sweet, yet there is also a bitter aspect, and that is the truth of it. Father, we pray that we would delight to see others coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and thanks that rejection often comes, but may we take joy in you. We thank you that you receive us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.